Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. But this morning, I get to finish off 2018 and also our Jesus in the Covenants series. And, oh my gosh, get ready. This is... It's going to be good. It's going to be good. This is not one of those fluff pieces. You want a fluff piece, go to a different church. Don't go to church even. You know, maybe it is a better idea. But today I really believe that God's got something important uh, for us. And, and I believe that this word is, is not just um, information for you. But if you want to set up the rest of your life, this is a word that you need to get into your spirit. And over the course of this series, as we were talking about the different covenants, they're all available on podcasts. You might want to grab them if, if some things don't quite link up for you. We're not going to be dwelling too much on those. But all of the covenants were building up this covenant that I'm going to be talking about this morning. And I'm going to, and I'm going to be talking about the covenant that Jesus is each, each, every, every single, single one of us. Of us. If, if, if you will, this is the covenant that makes the most direct relevance your life today and and all the rest of the covenants were building upon each other to get to this point we we see in the abrahamic covenant when god made a covenant to abraham he said one day your offspring will bless the whole earth referring to jesus a little bit later we have the mosaic covenant the covenant that god made with moses and the people of israel in the desert and he said uh, and, and there was in the midst of all of these regulations we spoke about this three weeks ago, uh, I don't remember, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and, and, and in the midst of all of these stipulations, there was this bit about atonement, about redemption, uh, about sacrifices, and that was looking forward to what Jesus would do, and then from there, we had the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David, and it said that one day, your offspring would sit on an eternal throne, and he'll be the Messiah of the world. Again, pointing to Jesus. And then after those covenants, there came these, this period called the prophets, where the prophets came and they prophesied into the future and to what was going on. And I want to read to you Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And it says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That was the Mosaic covenant, by the way. That's what they were talking about. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. God is establishing a new covenant. And in fact, he has established for us a new covenant. A new covenant is available and is made directly with us. And you might say in this Jeremiah passage that I just read, it says that this is a covenant that God was making with the people of Israel. And so you might be going, well, what relevance does that have to me? Unless you are Jewish, maybe that doesn't matter. But the truth is that when you look into the New Testament, by the way, something really interesting, when you have your Bibles, right, and you get to the first half or more like the first two-thirds, and it says it's the Old Testament, the word testament is actually another word for covenant. You're actually reading the Old Covenant, and then when Jesus hits earth in, in, in Matthew, you hit the New Testament, also known as the New Covenant. 
So we have this new covenant that is being made with us. And in the new covenant, when you read it, the New Testament, it says that if you believe that Jesus is your Lord, you are now Abraham's seed, which means that we are spiritually Jewish in that sense. And we now come under this new covenant. Again, Paul writes, in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Gentile. Because ethnicity, God doesn't so much care about the geography of where you live. He doesn't so much care about where you were born. He doesn't care about the color of your skin as much as He cares about the belief in your heart. The position of your heart determines whether you are part of this covenant or not. And this is an extremely important covenant because this is a binding promise that God makes with each and every single one of us. That's the foundation point. And so if you want to uh, dive deeper into this new covenant, and I suggest that you do, here's a couple of big passages to read. 2, uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 3 to 5 and Hebrews 8 to 11. Those two specifically unpack this new covenant for us to understand it. We don't have time to go through all of that today. In fact, I would say if you've got time, especially New Year, starting off, all that awesome stuff, Read through the whole of 2 Corinthians. Read through all of Hebrews. It will give you an even better understanding of this new covenant that we are living as a part of. But this morning, I only want to focus on Hebrews 8 to 11 for the sake of time. And I want to unpack with you three things that this new covenant gives to us. Three things that this new covenant gives to us. Before I start, I want to pray because I believe that this is so important. I honestly believe that this is one of the most important messages I could preach. And so I just want to pray because I believe that God needs to be the one that is carrying these words to you. God, I thank you for the privilege of standing here this morning. I thank you for the privilege of being able to share your heart. I thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word and bring truth that brings freedom, that brings hope and brings life. I pray that this morning my words fall apart that they don't matter, but your words are carried deep into the spirit, deep into the soul of every person, and that it brings new life, it brings transformation. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Are you guys ready? Number one. Say number one. I don't know why I got you to say it. I've got power. Say number one. <laughs> no, no one wants to do it. <laughs> number one that the new covenant gives to us is that through Jesus, our sins are completely forgiven. Completely, utterly forgiven. Key passage. Let's look at this. Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. It says the law is only a shadow. The law being the Mosaic covenant. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What this passage was talking about is that in the Mosaic Covenant, there was this annual uh, Day of Atonement. We spoke about this, where, where, where these goats and bulls were sacrificed in order to make atonement for the people, to make them clean, to wash away their sin. And, and uh, to me, when I was reading this passage, two words stood out to me. It says that those sacrifices were not able to make perfect 
And not only were they unable to make perfect, they were only a shadow of the good things that God wants to do for us. And as I started to think about this, the old covenant wasn't able to make perfect because it was only a shadow. Doesn't that mean that by inference that the new covenant makes perfect what the old covenant couldn't do? What was only a shadow and didn't have the form and the substance, the New Testament is able to bring in. I will put forward to you that each and every single one of us has this drive inside of us to be perfect. We all desire to be as perfect as we can be. There is something inside of us that seems to break when we aren't able to attain that level of perfection. And so what we do because we are unable to attain that perfection is that we start to try to do things in order to feel as perfect as possible. We collect things like relationships. We, we, we collect positions of authority. We, we, we collect fame, fortune. We, we collect all of these things in order to fill that gap where we feel inadequate, where we feel like we're not quite all there. But at the same time, we know that those things are not quite enough to make us perfect and and so we start to pretend you know one of the things that i hope that live church is able to be is a safe space where you don't need to come in and put on church face this is something seriously over the last couple of years that beck and i have seen so many people coming here trying to look perfect guess what you're not perfect and we know it and your mask gets crooked every now and then, and it looks like one of those whacked out dummy dolls with the head kind of tilted, and you look like you're demonically possessed. Your not-so-perfect mask isn't enough to hide your imperfection. And I hope that lift is a space that is safe enough where we don't need to pretend that I'm not doing okay today. I know that in some traditions or in some understanding that if you dare to say that you're not doing so well, that you'll be condemned, that you'll be put down. But guess what? Not here. Not under my watch. Because we need to understand that the old covenant, which represents what we are able to do, our human effort, isn't able to bring perfection. It isn't. But the new covenant brings this perfection to us. As we, as we read, Sorry, iPad just froze for a second. You know, we, we, we make the statement that we're only human. We cover up and we make excuses for our imperfections and saying, well, I'm just human. It's true. You are never able to attain perfection in and of your own self. And so what does God do? He brings that perfection to us. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says this, Jesus did not enter by means of blood and blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. As I said, read through the book of Hebrews, and there's this beautiful language that the author writes about how God is able to save completely. God is able to save completely. It says that His grace is sufficient to once and for all bring this salvation to us, to bring this perfection to us. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the first thing that happens is that you are given the status of perfection. 
No longer do you have to make sacrifices. No longer do you have to make this effort in order to gain this perfection. But you start from a place of perfection. And there are too many Christians that are still trying to prove that they're perfect instead of understanding that they are perfect in God's eyes. The Bible shows us that when God looks at us, He doesn't see our faults and our brokenness. He sees us through the blood of Jesus, which is sufficient to bring perfection. And when we understand that when we stand in this new covenant, the binding promise that God has made with me, I am perfect. You can look at me and say, that's perfection, because I am perfect in Christ. No longer this silly proving and working for your salvation. It only makes you tired. You are perfect. But why is it that I don't always feel perfect? Why is it that sometimes I still have to use that statement, well, I'm human, and I am. I thank you for your graciousness over the last three years. Because I've made some mistakes, and most of you don't even know about it, because it's covered up by you amazing leaders and an amazing team. It's, it's great. But there are moments where I look at myself and I go like, why am I still so messed up? If I am perfect, then why am I messed up? What does this perfection give to me? Why do what, what, what does this perfection afford me? What, what, what happens because God calls me perfect? Well, it brings us to the second thing that the covenant does with us is that through Jesus, we have full relationship with God again. This, this, this you need to get. Hebrews 10, 8 to 10 says this. This one's a little bit convoluted, so let me just read it first. It says, first... Jesus said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No one's going, wow, because why? Because this is a bit weird. What is going on here? Well, what is going on is that the author of Hebrews was quoting what Jesus was quoting. Let me say it again. The author of Hebrews was saying, Jesus used the book of Psalms and those two little quotes, sacrifices and offerings, and the second one, here I am, I have come to do your will. Those two are quotes from Psalms. And what Jesus was doing when he quoted those things is that he showed that first and foremost, that sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, God did not desire. It wasn't God's plan for human beings to annually sacrifice a whole bunch of animals and sprinkle blood everywhere, and God goes, hoo, 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 sprinkling of blood, that's my jam. Jam, blood, sorry. A visual moment. But, but God wasn't having a party when those sacrifices were being made. It's like, ooh, burnt beef on the altar. He wasn't going... Oh, I love the smell of slaughter. Sacrifices you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. So why did God institute those sacrifices? If God wasn't that excited about us killing animals, why did he institute it? Because it was a shadow of what was to come. And the shadow of what was to come was a sacrifice that Jesus made. And when Jesus came, he said, I have come to do God's will. 
And what is God's will? It is explained here. He sets aside the first, the first covenant in order to establish the new covenant. And in this new covenant, it is by God's will. And what is God's will? That we have been made holy. Catch that. The second covenant which shows what God's will is, is to make us holy. Now, many of us have grown up in church in this room. Maybe some of you haven't, but there's a whole bunch of scriptures in the Bible which I think have been somewhat misused and out of, made, made in, out of context and, and twisted in a way that holiness isn't as exciting to us as it should be. What do I mean? In the Bible, God says, be holy for I am holy. And what a lot of people have said because of that is that holiness is about purity. That, that, we, need to be, that we need to be completely pure in order to have any kind of relationship with God. And that's what they were saying. There was this, in fact, if you go into Google and you put in holiness movement, you'll get a whole bunch of preachers that talk about the need for us to live these morally upright lives. And so we have connotated holiness with the idea of being completely uh, and utterly morally upright, blameless in our walk. And so when we read things like God has made us holy, it actually feels like a burden, doesn't it? It's like, really, do I need to now do all of these things? But it's not the original intent of the word holiness. The original intent of the word holiness was that it just said that we are being set apart for God. That's what holiness means, that we are set apart for God. Set apart for God. In relationship with God. That set-apartness sometimes makes us a little bit weirded out. But let me give you a really real-life example. The whole idea of being set apart for a particular relationship is actually extremely common in our world. It's called marriage. In fact, the Bible often uses this new covenant and says and talks about it as a marriage between God and His church. And, and, and that's the new covenant that we are getting ready to be married to God. We are being, uh, getting, getting ready to be set apart solely for God. And in my relationship with Beck, this is what we call a covenantal relationship. That's what marriage is supposed to be. It's a completely, wholly committed relationship to one another where I am set apart for Beck. What does that mean? It means at the moment she put a ring on this, I wasn't going to be sleeping around anymore. It means that I'm not going to be having emotional affairs with any girl. It means that I am going to be living in a certain way that says that, Beck, you are my number one woman on this whole earth. It doesn't matter who else comes my way. I love what one uh, preacher said, that the moment you get married, your wife becomes your standard of beauty. I love that. It means that every other woman, you're being judged according to Beck in my eyes, which means all of you guys are not up to standard. Just letting you know in my eyes, that's just how it works. That is what it means when I'm set apart for Beck. And so there are certain benefits of being set apart for Beck. We are in this marriage relationship. And in this marriage relationship, the more I prove my set-apartness, building trust with my wife, there is this vulnerability. There is this openness. There is this trust. And there is this growing dependence. That's what marriage is meant to be. 
It is not growing independence. That is what happens uh, when a child is growing up and they need to leave the house. That is growing independence. That is a good thing. Parents, let your kids go. Not when they're two, more like when they're 18, all right? Just so that you know. But in my marriage with Beck, there is this growing dependence. And just recently, I've begun to find out how this relationship is so important. My words mean so much to Beck now. And Beck's words mean so much to me now that I am able to build her up or cut her down with a few tiny little words. Why? Because this relationship is so powerful. Why? Because she knows that I have set myself apart for her and she set herself apart for me. Can you imagine that kind of relationship with God? Where when we say that I have been made holy, I have been set apart to be in a covenantal relationship with God. The whole concept of holiness is about relationship. The whole, let me say it, you need to get this people. The whole concept of holiness is that God is wanting a committed covenantal relationship with you. And, and, and let me tell you where the whole purity and moral uprightness stuff comes in. It comes in after you understand that there is this relationship. Without this relationship, I don't have to care about which girls I hang around with. I don't. Honestly, we're not married. Beck has no right to tell me you're not allowed to hang out with that person. I was like, what? You have no right to say that to me. But because we're in this relationship and I'm enjoying the benefits of this relationship, I'm prioritizing this relationship. Other relationships come in alignment first with this one and then with the rest. Does that make sense? And I have to understand that this relationship is a blessing. In my human mind, there are moments where this relationship requires sacrifice, where this relationship requires certain choices, and sometimes I don't want to make them. I don't want to make that effort. I don't want to make that time. I don't want to do that stuff, but I do it. Why? Because this relationship is important. This relationship is a blessing. This relationship is forever. The moral uprightness comes when I understand that my relationship with God is my priority. My relationship with God is a blessing. My relationship with God is amazing and nothing else compares to it. That's why I'm going to obey the precepts in the Bible. That's why with what Sandy was talking about, that we love God so much that those precepts are like, yes, sure, no worries. Why? Because God is better than any of those things. And, and I didn't know where I wanted to go here, but I want to go here. Last night, Beck and I watched a movie. It's called Fathers and Daughters. And I don't recommend it if, if, you, if you don't want a sad movie. And I think it's just what God is doing in my heart. And it was really sad because there was this young girl. And, and, and she grew up and her mom died, passed away, and she was with her dad. And then there was a whole bunch of stuff that was going on. And her dad ends up passing away while she was really young. And she grew up and they just showed her as an older girl with, with, with this shutdownness in her emotions and a shutdownness in her heart. And she wasn't able to have relationships because of what had happened in her past that she hadn't dealt with. And, and, and through all of that, she ends up sleeping around. And, she, she became that loose woman that would just sleep around because she just wanted to feel something. And what I love about that movie is that normally Hollywood would glamorize sleeping around. It would be a choice of freedom, personal expression. 
No, no, no. This movie said that came from a place of brokenness. Because sex wasn't meant to be just flaunted around like that. It was meant to be done in the confines of a beautifully committed covenantal relationship. And that was what this movie was actually talking about. They showed her with a deeper emptiness when she misused sex. Sometimes Hollywood gets it. Sometimes Hollywood gets that there's a brokenness in the way that we do certain things. And we sometimes get a glimpse into how powerful this book is. Not because God is trying to burden you with being perfect, but because God loves you so much. And because of this committed relationship you're in, you trust that His words are the best for you. You trust that His words are going to bring you life, that His words are going to give you a hope and a future. Holiness is about relationship. Let's read on in Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. This is what the author goes on to say about this holiness stuff. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, why do we have confidence? Because Jesus. Because if Jesus didn't come, holiness is an absolute burden. If holiness didn't, if Jesus didn't come, holiness is unattainable. If Jesus didn't come, purity is too much for us to bear. But guess what? We're not living in that time and an age. We're living in a time where God proved that this holiness thing was initiated by Him. When God said, think about it this way. When God said, be holy for I'm holy, it's saying, love me solely because I love you solely. You set yourself apart for me because I've set myself apart for you. Do you understand that holiness is a response? That's why this is point two and not point one. Point one is that God's made us perfect. Through Jesus, we've been made perfect. Perfect for what? Perfect so that we can be in this relationship with God, so that we can have full confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have this great priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a sincere heart and full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unservingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Through this relationship we have with God, we have a hope. So we've been made perfect, we have a relationship with Him, and now we have, this, we have this hope. What's this hope all about? This is what I get really excited about. Number three, through Jesus, we get to live life. This is what the New Covenant does, people. Sometimes we forget and we focus on certain aspects of the Bible without seeing the big themes that are running through it. God gives us perfection. God gives us relationship. And God gives us life. John 10 verse 10. One of our favorite scriptures in this church. We use it as a big anchor point for us. Jesus said that he has come that we might have real and eternal life. More and better life. I remembered it yesterday. <laughs> And, and we even put it in our foyer. Why? Because we want to inspire people to live. Well, not just some kind of crappy second-rate life. We want people to live real life. That, and that's what God gives to us. And, and, and I really hope that we get this sense that we are meant to live true life. 
You know, a little while ago, I, I heard this definition of abuse that has really stuck with me. See, abuse, often we think about it as someone hurting someone else, right? But the real definition of abuse is just simply something that is being used outside of its function. Something that is being used outside of its function. Think about it this way. In gear one of a car, it has been designed and created to give you maximum torque. I don't know if I'm using the right words, by the way. Is it right, Dylan? <laughs> Thanks, guys. But gear one is designed to give you maximum torque to break inertia so that your car moves. It is an amazing gear. We all need gear one. Without gear one, we wouldn't be moving. Some people make gear two their gear one, which is beside the point. Gear one is meant to be used to help you break inertia. That is its design. But gear one isn't used to be driving at 100 k's an hour. In fact, if you push gear one beyond 25, 30 k's, depending on the car, your car starts to whine. There you go. And then you get it up to 100 k's an hour in gear one. And your car is literally shuddering and screaming at you. Why? Because you have used gear one outside of its function. What you have done is that you have abused gear one. You are abusing gear one because you're using it outside of its function. Human beings can be abused by being used outside of its function. In severe cases, for example, domestic abuse, your wife is not your punching bag. Never meant to be what you take your anger out on. That was not what wives were created for. That's abuse. Human beings have this amazing emotional wiring and this amazing, beautiful, and sometimes fragile soul. And so you can make emotional abuse by breaking that soul, by saying things that hurt. That's what abuse looks like. But let me just say, the more I think about this, the more I think that Christians abuse themselves a lot. Why? Because we have a design and a make. We have been created in a specific way to live in a specific way that generates the most fulfillment, that generates the most purpose, that generates the most peace, that generates the most joy. And when we live outside of that function, we are abusing ourselves. We need to come back to that place of knowing our design and our make. Because when we understand our design and our make, we are able to make choices that allow us to live life. And without the perfection that comes from God, without the relationship that that affords us, I think most of us wouldn't know where to start. But because we have been made perfect by God, because we are in relationship with God, He begins to show us how we've been created. And Hebrews gives us a bit of a sense about this. In Hebrews 10, 14 to 15, it says this, How much more than will the blood of Christ through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. That's our design, to serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, now that He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. We've been set free from our sins to be able to live how we're supposed to live, live by serving God. That doesn't sound too exciting, Nate. Why did He set me free to serve another God? I might as well serve the first God. I might as well serve my sins. It's more pleasurable in a moment, isn't it, Nate? Yes, but that's because we don't understand 
that if we have been created to serve God, when we serve God, we find fulfillment. When we serve God, something comes alive inside of us. And when I say serve God, get outside of your mind that you need to be standing where I'm standing and preaching another message. That's not what serving God looks like. Serving God looks like raising your family with right morals. Serving God looks like going to school and telling your friends about God, uh, doing, uh, uh, honoring your parents, respecting your parents. It looks like going to work and putting in your heart and your soul. It looks like all of these amazing things. The Bible shows us so many ways that we can serve God. But if we don't understand the relationship that we have with Him, where God said, I have already set myself apart for you, serving Him can look like a burden. But when we understand that serving Him comes from a response to what He has already done, it's just a natural thing. And when we understand that He loves us deeply and serving Him is not about... Now, I think some people, myself included growing up, thinking about verses like this, I thought that serving God meant that He's lounging on this day bed and I'm carrying a bunch of grapes and I'm popping them in His mouth. And then someone else, some of the sucker has this goose feather fan, and it's fanning God, and it's like, serve me. If that was God, would he have come to earth? Would he have died for your sins? Would he have done any of that? No, God got down and dirty, literally, walked on this earth, served us first. One of Jesus' most touching acts is that as the Son of God, he washed his disciples' feet. And he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And then through that, because we know that we are served, we serve. The more I walk in the call of God on my life, the more I serve Him, because the call of my life always relates to serving God, the more I come alive the more I understand how I have been created with the gifts and the talents that I have been created with, the more I come alive. God has not called you to be under, but God has called you to discover, to discover who you are, to discover your make and your purposes, to discover your call. Let me just say something. Most of us have very similar aspects to our call. We all worship God. We all love God. We all love one another. We put other people's interests in front of ours. That's all in the Bible. And then there's the specific stuff in your life. Like not all of us can sing like Robin. Some of you might want to try. Please don't. Don't. Save us. You're not serving anyone. God does not delight in the sacrifices of your vocal cords. And neither does he delight in the rupturing of my eardrums. You still have a specific call and you have specific talents and giftings. Let's continue to read. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises faithful. Because of this hope, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Good on you for making time to be here this morning because you know that that's part of the hope that you have. One of the things that I've learned about the call of God is that it's always activated in the community of God. Yes, many of us have a call beyond 
the body, to reach your friends, to reach your family that don't know about Him. But the starting point, the nurturing place, is always in the community of God in a local church. And we need to get better at being the local church. We need to get better at meeting together and spurring one another on. This is a challenge that I want to leave you with this morning. God put on my heart this year that what does encouragement and spurring one another on look like? I'm a, I, I love coaching people. I really love coming alongside people, helping them out, getting them to be the best person that they can be. But one of the things that I was missing this year uh, uh, and, and God lately over the last few months have really stirred in my heart is that I don't just go in um, with my knowledge and my skills, but I've started to really pray and seek after what God is saying is in a person's life. And that has been revolutionary. Because in my own skills, I'm not that great. But when I seek after God, knowing that He wants to build other people up, I say, God, how, how can I encourage? Even Beck, just the other day, I thought that Beck's pretty perfect already and she knows all the stuff that she needs to know. But then there was this moment where she was like, I'm not good at that. And I'm like, what? And I started to say, no, no, Beck, you are good at this and this and this and this and this. And in that moment, I was like, God, help me because I'm not a very naturally encouraging person. I'm not very good at that stuff. And, and, but right now, uh, I really want to build Beck up. So show me. And, and so I was like, okay, I think this, 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 this. Later on, she was like, no one's ever told me that I was good at that stuff. And I was like, I've always known that stuff. You know something about community? Is that quite often we see other people a lot better than we see ourselves. And when you're open and vulnerable and honest, people can actually go, hey, that's something really beautiful. But that's a challenge for us as a church. Let's get better at helping people see who they are. Let's help people see the giftings and the call and the amazing stuff that God has placed inside of their lives. I'm praying a whole lot more before I meet up with people. I'm spending time going, God, you need to show me what to really encourage in a person because sometimes I just, I just go in and I just say what I want to say, but I want to get better at meeting together because God loves each person more than I can ever love each person. And that's what all of this stuff is all about. The new covenant is a way of proper, full, sacrificial love. Without that hint of hunger and need, living our lives is always meant to be with people. As I mentioned last week, if you were here, that even psychologists are starting to understand that, that we were not created for perfection. We were not designed to make ourselves perfect. Rather, we were designed to be in relationship with people. Psychology has found it, but it was always in the Word of God. Always in the Word of God. So the three things that the new covenant gives to us, it gives us perfection, it gives us full relationship with God, and it gives us access to a life of abundance. That is God's binding promise to you. And as you think about this, 
and I hope you really do, I want you to enter 2019 with these questions. Am I trying to prove my perfection or have I received my perfection? What would my life look like if I had nothing to prove? What are the things that I would try if I had nothing to prove? What would my life look like if I didn't have this burden, if I didn't have those thoughts about how I am broken, that I've messed things up all the time? What would life be like if I truly understood that God has made me perfect? Then ask yourself, is my relationship with God based on trust or is it based on fear and intimidation? Is it based on the knowledge that God is the one that has paved the way for this relationship? Do you enter God's presence with confidence? Or do you enter in trying to hide certain aspects of your life because you're too scared that God would point them out? And finally, are you living life? Do you understand your call? Do you understand your make? Do you understand your design? Are you abusing yourself? Is there an emptiness inside of your soul? Because that might be an indication that you are living in an abusive way to yourself. And quite often we are so tied to our dysfunctions. I've lived that way before, thinking that, oh, no, 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 I think the moody Nate is Nate. And I've said this story many times. When I was a little kid, I would wake up and there was a sulk chair, literally. And my mom found out that if she just left me alone to sulk for the first 30 minutes of a day, I would be okay. But if she took away that sulk chair moment for me, the rest of the day was hell. Why? Because I was dysfunctional, man. Even at a young age of like three, I was a dysfunctional kid. Hanging on to my dysfunctions instead of finding that I don't like sulking. I actually enjoy life. I actually enjoy, do you enjoy waking up thinking that, hey, I could make a difference in someone's life today? Do you wake up thinking, wow, my life actually has purpose. Wow, I actually get to live a meaningful life that impacts others. I get to leave a legacy for the future generations. You can't do that without the new covenant. People try and people fail. There's always that emptiness on the inside. The new covenant makes us more life than we could ever be by ourselves. If you can get the band up this morning. This morning we are going to have communion together as a church. And we're going to have communion because communion was a moment where Jesus spoke about the new covenant. So the host can start distributing the emblems. In Luke 22, 14 to 21, it says this, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took the bread 
gave thanks and broke it, and he gave it to everyone saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance for me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. As we have communion this morning, can I ask that you commit to God the same way He committed to you? Can I ask that you have this moment and just think, wow, God, you would, you would do that for me. You would die that I would have perfection. You would die that I would have relationship with you. You would die that I could have life. This is the new covenant in my blood. Why don't you eat of the bread and drink of the cup? Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.